Well, good morning. My name's Steve. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, it's a real privilege to see you all this morning on this very hot uh, summer Sunday. My fear is that summer is peaking this weekend, and um, uh, by the time I go camping in um, August, it will be raining. Um, so you kind of wish you'd taken your holiday this week. Um, Joe, a couple, a couple of things before we dive in this morning. First of all, Alpha. Some of you know that we've been running the Alpha course, and um, we're, we've just done week two of Alpha, uh, which has been a really exciting opportunity for us to just um, invite a number of people into this environment to explore what it means to follow Jesus. And um, uh, we've got a whole bunch of people who are taking part in that course, which is really exciting. Uh, but one of the things that we could really do with help with is, is just to have some more people on team. Um, and, and just to have a few more people who can help serve the food, make the food, uh, serve drinks, tea and coffee, and, and, and things like that. So uh, if you think, I would love to you know, be part of uh, helping people discover what it means to follow Jesus for the very first time. I'm just not very good at talking, or I'm not very good at, good at um, you know, evangelism. Uh, actually, this is a really intentional way that you could be involved in, in seeing some people's lives transformed. So uh, if you are interested in coming and being part of that team, please speak to me, speak to Tammy, uh, and we would love to have you uh, part of that. We meet on Wednesdays. The team normally arrives at 7 p.m., and... Um, uh, the other thing, we'd love it if connect groups would like to perhaps provide food one week. Um, none of you have rushed uh, to that request, <laughs> um, but we would love it if, uh, um, if uh, the, we've got a connect group that has a barbecue every other week, and they're going to supply, and that doesn't mean the rest of you can come that week, um, but, uh, so they're going to do food, and so if you can beat that as a group, then we would love to have you come and, uh, um, and be part of Alpha. Uh, today is also Father's Day, and um, I don't know if you've noticed it on Father's Day. On, on Mother's Day, it's, it's quite easy isn't it, to be, you know, congratulate mothers for being mothers, and, you know, they're so caring, they're so giving, so sacrificial. Now, what do you say to dads? You know, you made it. <laughs> uh, um, well done. You know, you... Um, you managed to get up this morning, uh, or, or whatever it might be. But, but dads, we have, we do have a gift for you at the end of church today. Um, so, don't rush off, don't disappear until you have a Yorkie bar in your hand. Um, okay. In fact, that could go for anyone male. Okay, anyone male, um, you can have a Yorkie bar. Um, okay. We are in our second week in a, a teaching series that we began um, looking at the book of Colossians. Um, it's been a, been a peculiar week for me. Um, I, um, I intended to speak about the rest of chapter one in Colossians, and uh, what I put together really sucked. Uh, and so I changed it yesterday, so it could equally suck. Um, and if it does, we won't upload the podcast. And um, we'll forget this Sunday happened. Um, um, but we're going to be in Colossians chapter 2. So we're going to jump into chapter 2 and pick up in verse 8. And Tammy is going to come and read that for me because there's lots of hard words. <laughs> Only kidding. The microphone's there. 
Okay. So, Colossians 2, 8 to 14. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than of Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you are also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in your uncircumcised flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Woo! (laughs) Okay. So we said last time that the book of Colossians... Um, is a letter written to the church in Colossae. Colossae uh, is in, in what is now modern-day Turkey, and it's written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, and the Apostle Paul is this kind of like super apostle church-planting guy. Um, that's his definition from now on. He, he, um, <laughs> who wrote much of the New Testament, and um, he writes this letter whilst imprisoned in Rome, which was about 60 AD. And uh, so Paul is literally in chains uh, for the gospel. Uh, And we said that last week that Paul writes this letter against a kind of cultural backdrop. And there's a whole bunch of convergence going on, um, uh, and there's a cultural moment occurring. Uh, We talked a little bit last week about the reality of the cultural significance of the Roman Empire. We see that the Roman Empire was the primary force that shaped the prevailing culture of the day. And and, and we see through Roman ingenuity and um, their ability to do things well... um, that actually, that, that, that Paul is trying to write something that subverts uh, what everybody has bought into. You see, the Roman Empire, for all their faults, they did a pretty good job. Um, they managed to rule uh, for 1,500 years. And one of the key developments, we talked about this last week a little bit, um, wasn't pizza. Or, or anything like that. One of the key developments of the Roman Empire was Roman roads. Uh, the Romans built this network of roads. And some of you might remember me saying that last week, um, those roads had like a profound sociological effect on, on, on the people. Um, because what happened was things got smaller and started to move faster. Um, and, and we kind of likened it to life pre and post the internet, you know. And so when, when, the, when the internet come along um, in the dark times, I don't know if you remember this, uh, was it Al Gore who gave us the internet? Is that right? Is he responsible for the internet? Someone told me he was. Um, 
I think it was Al Gore. No? 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 Okay. Okay. I'll, I won't look at Wikipedia again. Um, um, but, you know, when the internet come along, did you notice how the world suddenly got smaller and the transfer of information sped up? It was quicker. And all of a sudden, we've got access to, to things that we never were able to access before. And, and so that kind of moment that many of us can relate to is kind of what was going on in the Roman Empire as these roads were being developed. Things uh, got smaller, and the access to things uh, got more vast. And so um, different things, different cultures, different foods, different languages, um, you know, different kinds of people, uh, all of a sudden were coming into interaction uh, with, with the Roman Empire. And one of the things that happens when, when things start to shrink and, and speed up is this idea of synchronism. And, and you'll remember we defined it like this. Synchronism is the attempted amalgamation of different religions, cultures, and schools of thought. And so these Roman roads, as I say, they opened up opportunities to new ideas, experiences, new cultures, new ways of doing things. And so what tends to happen uh, um, to us as human beings um, when this kind of things happen, when this kind of synchronism happens, is that we collect things, and um, and we kind of create a, an eclectic mix of things that form either our religious or our belief systems or our worldview. And uh, for us as a generation, that means that we've got a whole bunch of people who form truth and reality around things they read on Wikipedia like Al Gore invented the internet, and, and um, I'm sure he did. Um, <laughs> and, so, uh, and so it's important to note that in this time in the Roman Empire, um, not only were they creating this synchronistic kind of reality, um, but, um, but they were also um, doing well at keeping the peace uh, the, the, the Romans uh, developed this thing called the Pax Romana, uh, which was a season of, of great peace and security in the empire, where, where people began to look to the empire and think, actually, they're doing a good job. My life is going quite well. I'm quite comfortable uh, in this environment because this Pax Romana, this, this idea um, that, that actually um, peace had come to its citizens. And, 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 you know, history is a wonderful thing, isn't it? Because I'm going to kick that off there. History is a wonderful thing because we get to look back and see what happened. And one of the realities is that no matter how sophisticated the Roman Empire was, it still tumbled. You know, it, it still fell apart. It, it, it still ceased to exist. And, um, and you see, Paul, his big subversive message is this, is, is that your hope, your trust, your security isn't found in the empire. And the interesting kind of parallel that we, we talked a little bit about last week 
was, was this, this idea that we too are living in an age where the things that we often hope in, the things that we often trust in, the things that we often go to for security are starting to tumble, aren't they? Whether that's political systems, or whether that's cultural moments, whatever it might be, things that we've often relied upon in the past are crumbling, they're falling down. And so as we concluded last week, um, when, we, when we choose to step into a bigger narrative, a bigger story, God's story, we see both a challenge and an invitation and an opportunity ahead of us. You see, the, the challenge is for all of us to put our hope in the right story. For those of us who would call ourselves followers of Jesus, that we're not called to put our trust in the empire. We're not called to put our trust in the culture and the narrative that it speaks. But actually, we're challenged to lean into a different story, a a different narrative. And within that challenge is an opportunity. Because all the other stories around us, I think we've got the best story, but all the other stories around us are falling apart, aren't they? They're, 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 they're tumbling down. And people around us, I don't know if you've noticed this, but people around us are looking for a story that works. You know, some people would call it a meta-narrative, a, a, a big overarching story that makes sense of what life is really all about. As one commentator says, he says, when, a whole, when the whole population dreams the same dream, empire is triumphant. An alternative to empire requires different dreams animated by a different narrative. In other words, as followers of Jesus, we have the opportunity to dream alternative dreams that are shaped by a different story. And so that's kind of where we landed last week. It's kind of uh, what, we, what we were saying, uh, that our hope is not in empire, but our hope is in Christ. That, that our culture's summary of success is, obvious, is, is often this idea that success is found in money, sex, and power. But actually, the bigger story, the story that God invites us into, is a story of faith, hope, and love. And so this week, as we've read, we're jumping into chapter 2 of Colossians. And you might remember the other thing that we mentioned um, last, last time was, was often when Paul writes these kinds of letters, uh, he's addressing issues. Um, and, and he's actually addressing a big issue that has cropped up in this church in Colossae uh, about a group of people who have infiltrated the church called the Judaizers. And, and these people, they, they, they infiltrate the church and begin to infect people with their teaching. And, and basically, um, what they said to people uh, was, was, first of all, Jesus wasn't fully God. And, and, and the second thing they said was that Jesus wasn't enough. That the true gospel is Jesus plus dot, dot, dot. Okay, that's, that's kind of what these Judaizers uh, were, were, were teaching. But before we, before we jump into that, uh, I, I want to talk a little bit about a sickness, And it's actually a sickness that affects all of us. 
Uh, in fact, I would say many good church folk like yourself suffer with this sickness. Uh, you, 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 you have this sickness for sure. And the terrible thing is, is most of you don't know you have this sickness. Uh, you don't know you have it. Yet everything in your life often points to the fact that you have this sickness. It's, it's highlighted often in how you do relationships and, and how you respond to certain situations, how you try and control things or, or worse still, manipulate things. Does anybody know what this, this sickness is called? Uh, they do. This sickness is called identity amnesia. Identity amnesia. This sickness of forgetting who you are. Paul Tripp, uh, a pastor, an author, he says this, No one is more uh, influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you as much as you talk to yourself. And that's true, isn't it? Many of us are often continuing to have conversations with ourselves about our identity. And basically, uh, the thing that we continually say is, I, and then you fill in the blank, therefore, I am significant, accepted, and secure. And so you could fill in the blank with anything. You could fill in the blank with, I am loved by my spouse, therefore, I'm significant, accepted, and secure. You know, and some of us put our identity in relationships. And if we just have the affection of our wives or, or, or our husbands, then we feel significant. We feel accepted. We, we feel secure. And the problem is when we build our identity on other people, we place a weight on them that they can't live up to. Um, and because eventually they will struggle to provide us with, with the needs that we require from them. Others might say, you know, I'm an achiever, therefore I'm significant, accepted, and secure. And so what happens is we gain our identity from what we achieve. And if we don't achieve, we feel insignificant. And so what tends to happen is those who, who build their identity and achievement, they also suffer with another sickness, and that's the sickness of perfectionism. And, uh, and, and so people who, who tend to uh, work with an achiever mentality expect everybody else to work to their standards. And, uh, and what happens is, is that when our identity is caught up in achievement, when we get to the top of our game, it's never enough. There's always something else to be achieved when we find our identity in that place. Or a, a slightly more peculiar one, I'm the person with the perfect home, therefore I'm significant, accepted and secure. And so the person who gains their identity from, you know, having everything in its place and they find their security in the fact that their homes are always tidy and neat. Um, we don't have this one in our household, um, but their, their homes, I, wish, I always wish my kids would have this one. But, uh, um, you know, we find our identity in, in the perfect home. And one of the ways that you know that this is part of your identity is when someone comes along and messes it up. 
Um, you know, they get crumbs on the table or, or whatever, it's, or heaven forbid they use something in the kitchen. Um, and um, now, you, now you might think that sounds a little bit strange to place our identity in things like that, but the truth is we're all strange. And, um, you know, if all of us look at the strange things... <laughs> you know, that we give our identity to, if we began to think about that for a moment, we'd realize that we're strange. Um, But do you know one of the most harmful things that we can give uh, our identity to? Actually, one of the most harmful places that we can find our identity is in religious performance. And, and, um, And what we end up saying is is something like this. I'm a good Christian. Therefore, I'm significant, accepted, and secure. The problem is, when we find our identity in our religious performance, it often leads to us becoming enslaved, us becoming captives. And so as we pick up in, in verse 8 of chapter 2, uh, we see Paul kind of going after this head on. And he says this in verse 8. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and uh, deceptive philosophies which depend on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of the world rather than on Christ. In other words, make sure no one makes you a religious slave and puts you uh, in a religious prison where you're left trying to find your identity in your religious performance. You see, that's what these Judaizers were saying. They were saying things like, to be a good Christian, you have to follow the rules. You have to follow the rules. Um, You might have Christ, but now you've got to follow the rules. If we look up in uh, verse 16, it says, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regards to the religious festivals, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. That You see, what they were saying was, you might have Christ. You know, you Christians in the Colossi church, you might have Christ, but actually, you need more. You need to fulfill the law. You, you need to keep the Sabbath. You, you need to keep the food laws and the festivals. But here's what Paul says in verse 17. He says, there are, the, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. In other words, Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that was required. That, that Jesus uh, fulfills the law. And so Paul is saying it's not Jesus plus the Sabbath. It's not Jesus plus certain foods. It's not Jesus plus religious festivals. It's just Jesus. And yet you and I know, and you know, I've been around church long enough to experience this, is that there's lots of people who come to churches who like to create rules. I don't know if you've noticed that. In, in, in order for us to be good Christians, you get to follow the rules. And, and each of them have some different rules. I was brought up in a brethren church, and um, my mum could never go to church in trousers. Heaven forbid. Heaven forbid. Um, and she always had to have her head covered. And, and, you know, we never went shopping on a Sunday. Um, or anything like that. Never went swimming 
You can't go swimming on a Sunday. Um, because these are rules that men made up. Um, there's nothing biblical about them necessarily, but they're just rules that have been added to what Christ has done. And so the second thing that these Judaizers were doing, they're not, they weren't just saying keep the rules, but what they were also doing is that you get to be a good Christian if you practice personal piety. It says, let no one cheat you out of your reward, taking delight in false humility. And uh, actually, the NIV, I really hate what it says there. You can cross it out. If you've got an NIV Bible, you can cross it out. <laughs> and I think you should put what the ESV says. It says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. Assist, uh, insisting on asceticism. <laughs> and so, what, what, do, what does that mean? It means, it means severe self-discipline, avoiding any form of indulgence, typically for religious reasons. Now, there are times, aren't there, where we, where we call one another to pray, where we call one another to read our scriptures, where we call one another to fast and, and pursue things, religious practices that do us good. But the, the key here is that Paul says, don't listen to people who, who insist that you do this. Don't listen to people who, who say you've got to do this. And the problem is when we have this pious practice built into our identity, we think, you know, I'm a good Christian because I pray and read my Bible every day. Or I'm a good Christian because I fast once a week. Or I'm a good Christian because I go on a personal retreat every month. I've just described my life. Um, And so, uh, if you can beat that... um, but when we, when we think that way, we can bring healthy personal practices into our identity, and that leads to enslavement. And people uh, are enslaved in their religious uh, performance. And it can manifest itself in lots of different ways. If you've been around the church long enough, you, you've seen it. But people enslaved in religious performance are often judgmental. I don't know if you noticed that. It says in verse 16, it says, Do not uh, let no one judge you. Yet, yet when our identity is caught up in our performance, we often find ourselves in a judgmental attitude towards others. Because we're working so hard, why aren't they? And so we become judgmental. The second thing is it leads to pride. Uh, um, in verse 18, it talks about being puffed up with their, their, with their fleshy minds thinking they're superior, that they have some secret knowledge that that no one else has access to. And the third thing um, from religious performance, and and this is probably the most damning, in verse 19 it says says this, and not holding fast to the head, for whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grow in the increase that is from God. In other words... Um, the, 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 the thing that it brings out the worst in us is that it enslaves us to religious practice that removes us from Jesus. And Jesus is meant to be the one who's the source of all spiritual life. And so the most, the most toxic place we can find our identity is in our religious performance. And yet we're all guilty of it. We're all guilty of it. Martin Luther, the, 
The famous reformer says, religion is the default mode of the human heart. And see, we think by practicing our religion well, it makes us a good Christian. Can I let you into a little secret? There aren't any good Christians. There aren't any good Christians. Because when we base our identity on that level, we're saying, I'm a good Christian because of my good work, because of my efforts, because I've tried harder than everybody else. But actually, I don't think we say that. We don't say, I'm a good Christian, dot, dot, dot. What we often say is, I'm a bad Christian. Anybody guilty of that? I'm a bad Christian, therefore I'm insignificant, I'm rejected, and I'm insecure. The reality is most of us think we are so bad at keeping these made-up rules and so bad at personal piety that actually it drives us further and further away from Jesus. But that isn't good news. That isn't the good news. That isn't the gospel that we, we so readily accepted. Verse 9, it says this, For in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principalities and powers. You see, we, we are to live the Christian life from a place of completion. We're, we're to live the Christian life from a place of fullness, We don't live the Christian life from a place of emptiness uh, where we're left to find out how we fill ourselves up. We live the Christian life having been completed in him. And And so it should be, I'm in Christ. I'm found in Christ, therefore I'm significant, accepted and secure. That's our identity. You know, who cares what we get from other people? Who cares, you know, um, you know what, we, what achievements we might make personally? Who cares what our house looks like? None of it matters. What matters is who we are in Christ. And who I am in Christ is, is a child of God. I'm a child of God. I'm, I'm a child of God who's significant, who's, who's accepted, who's, who finds his security in what Christ has done. In verse 11, it, it, this passage takes a peculiar journey around circumcision, which um, if you think visually whilst we're reading this, it's an awful thing. Um, yeah. But... <laughs> But it says, in him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off, uh, by putting off the body of the, of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Some of you will know that the significance of circumcision in the Old Testament was a sign of Abraham's covenant with, with God. And uh, every newborn son on the eighth day... Was, was circumcised. And, and, and what they were saying was, we're part of this covenant. We're part of this blessing. We're part of being part of God's chosen people. 
And what Paul is saying is, it's not just Jewish boys that get circumcised anymore. Uh, But we're all circumcised through a spiritual circumcision done by Jesus himself. That the, the, the moment we turn to Jesus, our, our sin nature is cut away. It's nailed to the cross, and we're made into a child of God. We're, we're made part of his family. And baptism is a, is a symbol of that. It says in verse 12, Buried with him in baptism, in which we also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised, raised him from the dead. And so when we go down into the waters of baptism, it represents the old life, that that old nature being completely dead. And when we come out of the water again, it represents that we've been risen to new life in Jesus, made part of his family, that that we're, we're, we're children of God, we're made significant in him, we're accepted by him, we're, we're secure in him. It says in verse 13, And you, being dead in your transgressions and your uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you, you all, or having forgiven you all trespasses, uh, having wiped away uh, the handwritten of requirements uh, that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it uh, out of the way, having nailed it, to the cross. There's this wonderful reality in this passage that we're, all of us are sinners, you know, and, and, and there's this imagery that we could write all our sins on a piece of paper or, I don't know, a very large sheet. I don't know, or, or how, how, you would, how much paper you would need. But there's this, there's this picture that we would, we would write all our sins and, 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 and those sins, uh, uh, the requirement for those sins is, is death. And, and Jesus comes along and he dies in our place and the result is our sins are forgiven and we're accepted and we're secure in Christ. That's our identity. That, that's who we are. We sing that song, don't we? We didn't sing it today. But you're a good, good father. You're a good, good father. Sorry, Sam. It's who you are. And then what's the the next line? And I'm loved by you. It's who I am. It's who I am. That, That, you know, we don't have to do anything. There's no additions to what Christ has done. We're loved by him. We're accepted by him. We're made secure by him, and he accepts us just as we are. But the problem is, we carry this sickness of identity amnesia. And the reality of who we really are, and the status that we really do have, is often reduced to a theory. A guy called Richard Lovelace, he says, he says this. He says, only a fraction of the present body of professing Christians are solidly appropriating the justifying work of Christ in their lives. Many others have a theoretical commitment to that doctrine. In other words, many people who follow Christ 
they accept in their minds that their sins are forgiven. And yet the reality of that is still to sink in. He goes on, he says, but in their day-to-day existence, they rely on their sanctification, that's their daily walk with Christ, for justification, drawing their assurance of acceptance with God from their sincerity, their past experience of conversion, their recent religious performance, and their relatively, relative infrequency of their conscious willful disobedience. Their conscience, con- continuous, sorry, continuous willful disobedience. I can't read today. Um, uh, their continuous willful disobedience. You know, you and I, in other words, you and I, we try really hard, particularly in church, not to commit certain sins, don't we? And, um, and, the, and the problem is, this problem is when we try really hard, we think, again, that we do it, when we do that, we're accepted more. Don't we? We do. We do. You know, you've probably done it this morning. You know, maybe it was on the way to church while she was rowing with your other half or yelling at the kids or whatever it might be. But we think if we manage our behavior as much as possible, then somehow Christ will accept us some more. But what Richard Lovelace says is that actually we have to stand on Luther's platform where he, where he continually said, you're accepted. You're accepted. You're accepted. That actually, there's nothing we need to do. There's no performance that we have to enact. There's no religious activity that we have to engage in. But actually, we're accepted just as we are. That this morning, you're more loved, you're more significant, you're more accepted, you're more secure, you're, you're part of God's family. You're loved by him. And none of it is based on what you do. That's pretty good news, isn't it? None of it is based on what you do. It's, none of it's based on what you've done. And none of it's based on what you might do in the future. Right now, right where you are, with all the stuff that goes on in your head and your heart, when you made that decision to surrender yourself to him, you were fully accepted. That's our identity. And you see, that's the identity that we take into the world around us, a changing, dysfunctional world. And when we, when we, when we choose to live by a different identity and a different narrative, it causes, it causes revolutions. It means we begin to do that thing. You know, that, that quote I said was, was, was that, you know, a different culture is birthed when, when we dare to dream different dreams that's written to a different narrative, that's animated by a different narrative. That's what we're called to be. That's what we're called to do. And it's rooted. It's rooted in our identity. It's rooted in who we are. 
that we're accepted and loved by God.